Welcome to the Successful Life Podcast, your go-to source for insights and strategies in the HVAC, plumbing, and roofing industries. I'm Corey Barrier, here to guide you through transformative approaches to business and mindset. Each episode will explore unique methods, focusing on identifying and addressing the core challenges in your field. Our goal is to equip you and your team with practical solutions that foster growth and success. So whether you're tuning in for the first time or you're a longtime listener, get ready to dive into a wealth of knowledge and expertise. Let's begin our journey to success together. This is the successful life. It's Corey Barrier. Yeah, come learn with me. Take you down the path of our journeys. This is the successful life. It's time to take what you learn. Apply it to your life. It's your turn. To live a successful life. You are tuning in to the Successful Life Podcast. Three, two, one. Let's go. Successful Life Podcast is a space where you can hear stories from badass entrepreneurs and influencers that collectively have millions of listeners and followers. You get to hear their backstories and where they are currently. We discuss how precious your life is and crucial it is to live with a purpose and die knowing the person looking in the mirror today. This is the successful life. Corey Barrier, yeah, come learn with me. Take you down the path of our journeys. This is the successful life. It's time to take what you learn. Apply it to your life. It's your time. To live a successful life. You are tuning in to the Successful Life Podcast. Three, two, one. Let's go. Welcome to the Successful Life Podcast. I am your host, Corey Barrier, and I am here with Nina. I'm going to let her, of course, pronounce her last name because if I do it, I will mess it up. Nina, what did tell tell everybody your last name? It says Alk. 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 See, I I should have tried that, but so um, the reason I I wanted Nina to come on today is because I heard her sharing in a room uh, in Clubhouse, and it was. I, I don't actually remember all the details of the story, but what I do know is uh, she's had a pretty impactful, um, some pretty impactful things happen in her life that she's going to share with us today. And I just hope that everybody's prepared because this is going to be a really good conversation. And I'm really excited, but almost a little bit nervous to hear because, you know, you're going to share. I know you're going to share some vulnerable things with us and it's some of the things that I I think you're going to share with us today are are going to be things that people lots of times have a hard time hearing. And so um, I just asked the audience to stay with us today and, and and hear this story because I think it's going to potentially change her life, change your life uh, or maybe somebody's lives around you. So Nina, um, with all that, nice introduction sort of uh i'm going to give you the floor and and let you tell us a little bit about yourself and and some of the things that have gone on in your life okay sure brilliant thank you so much so my main objective is to reach as many hearts as i can as many people as i can that are feeling lost and bewildered and they don't know where to turn to people that are feeling unloved not good enough And my motive is to come out and say to people that are out there that you are loved because my cup is so full with love that I want to share it. And also to never, ever, ever give up. I want you to just find a way, make a choice, move, do something, but never give up on wanting to live a life that's yours. And it's just a case of you reaching out there to take it. 
Um, so I was, Nina, yeah. why do you say why do you say never give up? Never give up because my life has been continuously very testing, I would say, and many a times I could have given up, but something kept me going, something within kept me going that I know is within everybody out there and it is within you, but sometimes it's hard to find. But if you can take some strength from me and say, well, she's done it and I'm nobody special. So I know that everyone out there is just as wonderful as I feel I am now and I feel strong from it. And I want them to understand that they can get through anything if they believe in themselves. Perfect. I appreciate that. Um, all right, let's go. Let's hear it. Yeah. So I'm, I was born in an Indian family, an Asian family, and um, my culture, they don't like girls to be born. So I was born with two older siblings, two boys and brothers, and my father really didn't like the fact that I was a girl. So I was neglected as a child, really unfair to look at. I wasn't looked after at all. And then when I was six years old, cut a long story short, I became a servant in the house. And when I say servant, I did have my own room by the age of six, luckily. But the room consisted of just um, a bed with a mattress, no bedding, no pillow, nothing. So it was no, there were no luxuries. My luxuries were actually books that I took back from school. And I would be summoned downstairs. I would hear them shouting, food, come down, or come clean, or whatever the chore was. But I didn't know any different. So for me, that was almost my... Um, interaction with them and I enjoyed that interaction because I didn't know any different I didn't watch television as a child I wasn't allowed so I would literally put my ear against my bedroom door and pretend I was there as so children have a really good imagination but I could hear everything that was going on around and literally imagine being on the sofa with my brothers watching television playing about with them Nina, so let me, can I ask you, yeah. is that, is that, is that fairly normal in the, in, in your culture? Is that normal to, to, to have that type of upbringing as a, as a girl in your, in India? Well, I was born, I'm, I'm born and bred in the United Kingdom in England. So I'm very English. But oh, I my, thought you said India. I'm sorry. No, my, my parents are immigrants from India and they came okay. over. So I did hear the word India somewhere. You did, yeah. Answer your question, yes. It's very common for girls to be treated badly. A lot of people now abort a child when they know it's a girl, so they won't even have the child. In India, some people kill the the daughters when they're born. Um, I wasn't killed, so I'm really pleased about that. And I think I'm able to share a lot because... I have survived death so many times, but it's very common to be treated as literally a servant at at a very young age and not be included in any family life. Yeah. Unbelievable. That's almost like I can't even wrap my head around it. I'm having a hard time even processing how, you know, how, how, how that even happens. But anyway, go ahead, continue, please. there was a form of discrimination, gender abuse, that's what it is. Um, but within the family, there was a lot of mental abuse, physical abuse. <clears throat> and um, by the age of, I think my first experience of love was when we got a dog. Um, she was the warmest thing and, and, and the loving thing, you know. And I didn't know much about animals or pets and things, but I was given the, I was given the job of looking after her, which I loved because I instantly had a friend. And... She was allowed to sleep in my room, so that meant I was warm. All of a sudden, I had this warm person to cuddle, and and I did, and I loved I loved her to bits. And 
you know, you, I used to talk to her. She was literally my my one person. And um, that was my first experience. I, As I said, I, I went to school, but when I turned up at school, I was really rather dirty because my mother wouldn't clone my hair and I wasn't able to at that age from a young age. So, and I didn't have my clothes washed and things. As, I would wash everybody else's, but they didn't really allow me to wash mine as much. So it was almost like a punishment that you, you know, that you're a different sort of, citizen almost you're not allowed to look clean and, and prim and proper so I didn't actually get that so I didn't have many friends at school because naturally I wasn't attracting friendships and I was the only person of colour in my school which caused huge problems also but then when I got to 14 um, my mother called me downstairs because my father had returned from the pub which is like a bar and he'd brought back a lot of drunk friends and unfortunately the same Hands that are supposed to protect me um, held me down and in a gang rape. And I kept my eyes wide shut. I don't know what happened, but I know that I ended up being raped several times. And I did fall pregnant by one of the men. And um, at the age of 15, I had an abortion. And when I came back from this private clinic that my parents had taken me to, I tried to take my life because life just wasn't worth living for me at that time. Oh my God, I can't even, I, I can't even, yeah, I can't even ima imagine well, that. If someone's a father out there, you know, or if you've got a father, you would assume that a father's job is to protect, to nurture, to look after, especially their little girl, so to speak. But I really didn't have that. And I think when, the abuse is from somebody that is supposed to be looking after you. It's just so much more worse to transcribe into your head why, you know, you sort of want to know why and how. And as a parent, I can't understand it myself. But What was it like after that with the, uh, you know, what you didn't have a great relationship, obviously, before that. But was did did it just kind of go back to your what your normal was at that afterwards? This episode of the Successful Life Podcast is brought to you by House Call Pro. Whether you're looking to streamline your operations, reduce paperwork, or boost revenue, House Call Pro is your all-in-one business solution. Transform your business today with essential tools and support designed to drive efficiency and deliver exceptional customer service. To learn more, click the link in the show notes. I was even more scared than I was to start with. I was always a frightened young thing and I became very frightened and I became quite lost at school. It would have been obvious to the teachers had they looked, there was something very significantly wrong, which is why, I, you know, if I tell this story and I understand now, if I tell this story, somebody out there who might be a teacher or a neighbor might think or see something that's not right with a child of that age and maybe even just discreetly make a call to social services or somebody or ask the child if they're okay because guaranteed if somebody had asked me at school if I was okay I, I was at the stage where I would have broken down and just told anybody I just was desperate for someone to care for me so it was very difficult I was very very scared I became worse than I ever was and very depressed as you can imagine and I was a very extremely fiercely intelligent person. So I was doing extremely well at school, but 
my grades just went completely down. I still somehow managed to pass my exams, but yeah, it was a really difficult, difficult time. I cannot even imagine. So what happens, what happens after that? After you get done with the abortion, you get back home, grades start to fall. Yeah, so I did try to take tablets, which I understand is the most common thing for young women to do. Um, and I was punched and kicked, um, punched in the stomach until I was sick. Um, you, did, you, you took what now? I took an overdose of tablets. Oh, oh got it, got it, got it, okay. Yeah, I understand that's the most common thing for women, young women to do. Um, yeah, it's also one of the most painful ways to try to take your life as well. Yeah, well, I, I was punched when my mother realized and she called my brothers and they all kicked me in the stomach until I was overly sick. And yeah, so I, I, I think I wasn't, I wasn't well for days. I didn't go to school for days. I didn't get up for days, but I did eventually get up. Um, and I was by this age sort of coming up to 16. And then I was told I was having an arranged marriage, which was again, very common. And it still is very common. But that uh, helped me, that would, I, in my eyes, thinking about where you were at that point in your life, I would almost think that would be a better move than, a far better move than where you were. Well, that's what I thought. I actually thought that maybe I'll get out of here and that's the God's honest truth. I thought I am going to escape. I'm going to actually get away. And I was very, I've always been very dreamy, <laughs> you know, one of those dreamers and dreaming of fairy tale endings and, you know, the whole romanticizing every situation, everything's beautiful and perfect. I've always been that way. But the issue was that the, the guy I was marrying, the boy I was marrying, he was very young himself. He was the son of one of the men that had raped me. So it was a deal that my father had made with one of his friends that I would go to his house. Um, and when I did have the arranged marriage and I walked in, they took away everything that I had, my in-laws. They said that I was sleeping in a room on my own downstairs, which was tiny little closet with a tiny little bed um my husband said to me that he wasn't interested he was forced into the marriage himself he had a girlfriend and it, there would be no interaction between us and for four years I fought off my father-in-law because he constantly tried to sexually abuse me it was a case of me prizing his hands off me out of my clothes I would push him away and by the age of 21, I had just had enough of life. I, again, didn't know what to do. So I escaped back to my parents' home thinking that was a good move um, to get away from my father-in-law's attempt of, of rape again. Um, yeah. I, so I, I didn't think it would get any worse. I didn't think that the story would get worse, but it has so far. Yeah, it's, it's not... It's not an easy story. My story is, I would say, and honestly say it's tragic, but there is a, there is a, a following of the abuse that's followed me through life. And part of that is because you believe you're not worth anything. And part of that is your mentality. Maybe I was supposed to go through all of these things, in my opinion, because it allowed me to understand how somebody else might feel in that situation so I can help them. I wasn't able to help myself. And if I hadn't gone through those things, how would I be able to empathize and truly say to somebody, look, I don't know how you feel because only you know how you feel because everyone's perception is different. 
but I love you and you are good enough and what can I do to help you because I'm strong, I'm standing here, I've lived through it, but what can I do to help you see your strength? So I wouldn't change anything and it does get worse, I'm afraid. Um, I'll carry on. At the age of 21, as I said, I escaped back to my parents and as I literally stepped through the door, my father, who is an ex-wrestler, he's a huge guy and my eldest brother, he's huge tall boy you know it's over six foot they dragged me in through the front door by my hair and they started to beat me up because in my culture if you leave your marital home you bring shame upon your family and they believe in honor killings and I understand the word honor and killings don't mix but it's basically a way of hiding any shame that you've created that the community may gather around and say to my parents that she didn't stay in the relationship, what's wrong with her that the others didn't want her. So it's a huge cultural disposition, I would say, that makes no sense at all. Um, when I did enter the house, as I said, they dragged me through the house and threw me onto the floor. They broke my arm, my jaw, <clears throat> excuse me. They broke my arm and my jaw, they broke my hip. Um, and there was not one piece of skin that wasn't cut with blood and I was just literally covered in blood and when I fell down they started to stamp on me and I passed out if I'm being honest but I remember waking up the next day hurting like anything as you can imagine and I was told that I would be sent to India in two days time but somebody had warned me um, a family friend had come and sort of said if you go to India when you get to the airport ask for help I couldn't do that because if I'd got to the airport with my mum on one side and my dad on the other, I would have been far too scared to help, ask for help. I wouldn't have been able to do it. So I decided I was going to have to run. And considering I was such a, I was a really good runner back then, I used to run for the county, but I couldn't even stand up. You know, I, I literally was still covered in blood. And when I would look at my skin, I would see nothing but cuts and bruises. So I waited until the day that we were supposed to travel and my mum and dad said, you know, you're going to have to get ready. You've got a flight tonight and you can go and shower later. So I thought, well, this is it's either now or never. And I thought to myself, do I want to go? And I thought, no, I don't. I don't want to die. I mean, what would you do? You know, you wouldn't you wouldn't want to die if somebody's if you know that's what's in front of you, you would not want it. So I um, literally crawled around the corner to a park and. It was starting to get dark and I hid. I had a very light jacket. I hid and I watched my father driving past. He just kept going and I, every time I saw him, I'd shudder, I was so scared. I was shivering with the cold and the fear. But I sat there until it, it was daylight. Oh my God. That's unbelievable. Like what was going through your head? I guess just fear, sheer fear. I just knew that I didn't want to die. I just knew I didn't want to go back to my father-in-law's. I just knew that I didn't want to be hurt anymore. I just knew that there was something bigger and better out there that I, I just didn't want to give up. And that's one of the reasons that I say to people that, yes, my story is tragic, but realistically, trauma is trauma. And there's no comparison of trauma. My trauma might be different to somebody else's, but it's still painful. You know, we still have gone through that process. And it's a sense of loss. It's like you might have lost a job or a loved one. I lost my innocence. It's not the same thing, but it's still a loss. So 
I do believe that we can resonate with some of the emotions amongst us and maybe get some strength from it. Um, when daylight broke, I went to somebody who offered me a place to stay. He, this should have been my happy ending, it really should have. He ended up being the father of my three amazing children and I was with him for 23 years, but it was literally like glass breaking my whole daydream world, you know, that I thought would be amazing and beautiful because domestic violence, I went through domestic violence for then 23 years. I ended up getting pregnant. We didn't date, you know, I ended up running away and living in his place and we went out. I'd never drank alcohol before and I did drink that day and um, I got pregnant. But if you're a father, if anybody out there is a parent, you know that when you hold your first child, you feel this, it's indescribable, the rush of love and purpose. You have a purpose, you have this being that you're responsible for. And I wanted to give her everything I had never had. I wanted to give her love. I wanted to give her the best schooling. I wanted to give her presence, you know, and everything. I wanted to teach her things. And things went along. We lived together. We were cohabiting, I would say, but we were never in a real relationship. I didn't understand what a real relationship was. I had nothing to compare it to. And five years later, I had my son, my first son, and then I fell pregnant again. And um, this is the hard one. This is where I get really upset. But um, I was eight months pregnant and he pushed me down the stairs um, when I was eight months pregnant. And there was a lot of physical abuse, but this time he pushed me with such a force that I ended up going to the hospital and my baby died at birth. And that for me was that one year where life literally stands still and you just want to sort of scream to people to stop because you've lost something so precious. And I had two young children depending on me because the father didn't interact with them. I was running five businesses at the time, but I just couldn't mentally move forward. There was just a block and I just wanted my baby back. And like I've described it before, my pillow wasn't dry ever. You know, I just wanted this child. There was that longing for, for me to have him back. And eventually time went on and I had another baby, a baby boy. And I felt like maybe God's taken, but he's also given. I didn't, didn't make sense to me, but I wanted to again live. And um, my youngest son did give me that will to carry on. I found it and I carried on. And to cut a long story short, um, abuse got really bad it got it became from punches and kicks to strangulation I was asleep one day and he literally set my pillow on fire as I was sleeping and the times I could have died and should have died are too many for me to count if I'm being honest if you asked him why have you done this he would always say well it needs to be done you know we'd always give you an answer that made no sense and I'd stopped making sense of things because obviously I wasn't thinking straight, but I was in a situation where I was so controlled and watched. I was, my car was monitored, my calls were monitored. I was watched on CCTV at work. I was listened to in the car all the time because we, we had to have our phones on. And the children were being brought up in this way and I didn't see it was wrong. When you're in a situation, you don't see it's wrong because you make excuses for that other person. So if someone's out there and they're living through these things, 
be honest with yourself. And if you don't want to help yourself, think about the children, because anytime he could have done those things to my children and I just didn't think it, I just didn't think. I felt I had no choice, but the choices are there. You've just got to make those choices and you've got to be brave because the way that I escaped is that my daughter had gone off to university. I had to send my first son to boarding school because innocently he was sitting and his dad just literally delivered a blow to the back of his head and, and he propelled from one end of the table to the other for no reason. And that's when I knew that if something doesn't change, then they're going to start being beaten. And I didn't want that. So here's here's where I'm, I'm having a, a really hard time understanding it. And I, I'm trying to figure why would you do, why would you feel the need to punch anybody, anyone for no apparent reason? I don't, I, I'm having a disconnect with yeah. that thought process. Well, if anybody's out there that's a young man, I think I'm speaking to them also, that's watched their mother being abused, they start to stand up because at a certain age, children understand the difference between right and wrong. You can lie to them like I used to and say everything's fine. And my, my thing is I would always smile and I still do that. It was because I wanted them never to remember their mother crying, but to always remember their mother smiling. But behind that smile, there was someone suffering terribly. And he started to see that. And then I, I'm one of these people that plans. I plan, plan, plan. You know, if I do X, Y and Z, these steps will lead me to that. And I ended up sending him to boarding school, which meant I had to then create some more money to pay for the boarding school because they're not cheap wherever you are in the world and the problem with that was when he left his younger brother was left alone and I didn't think about that but at the time I did what I thought was best I thought I was protecting him which I did but when he left my youngest son became really ill he ended up in hospital with an autoimmune disease which is caused by stress because he had nobody else to talk to his his buffer had gone, there was nobody there. His, his buddy, his brother had left and he was just left with me and the abusive situation. But when we came out of hospital, um, there was a couple of, probably not even a week later, my partner, my former partner sent a picture to my daughter, a picture message saying, I'm sorry. And in the picture, I was asleep on the sofa. It was midday, it was daylight. My son, youngest son was asleep, he'd come out of hospital and she instantly knew, you know, when you get that feeling in your gut that something is seriously wrong. And imagine how she felt. She was over 200 miles away at university. She'd got this picture, she had no way of reaching me and she thought she'd lost us that day because I didn't sleep. I've had insomnia since he set my pillow on fire so I just have serious sleeping issues, understandably. And um, she rang every phone in the house. Now my former partner was super paranoid that I was talking to people. So he had more than one landline in the house, but the bass rang and the phone stopped working. So that was good for us because she woke me up by ringing the bass. Then she rang my mobile phone and I answered, but when I answered my throat felt so dry and strange. Um, I said she was screaming, she was literally screaming. And when you've come out of like a, a woozy sleep, 
is someone screaming at you, you're thinking, what's going on? Please stop. My daughter's not the type to scream either. I went into the kitchen and saw that he turned on the taps to the cooking stove and the whole house was full of gas. At that point, I should have taken my son and walked, but I didn't. I went upstairs, opened the windows, and I sat there and didn't know what to do again, thinking if I leave, he's going to kill me. Little did I understand, he's trying to kill me anyway, but not just me, he's trying to kill my boy, our boy. Um, and then my son spoke out at school. He basically saved us from the situation that we were in. Again, that turned a little bit difficult because the police were involved. It was a very serious, um, I was a very serious case because of the consecutive murder attempts that were made upon me that I wouldn't admit were murder attempts. So when, a, when an under, he was under 16, when he spoke out, it was taken very seriously at the school. They said they would put him into foster care and I refused. I really said, you can't take him from me, but they were worried whether I could actually look after him. And now looking back on it, it, I can understand where they were coming from. At the time, I was desperately trying to hold on to him. So they took us away and they take you away very quickly. You don't get very much time to think. I, wasn't, I was told to leave my bank cards. I picked up a handful of change in my jacket. We just didn't think because you're in such a rush and such a panic, your heart's it's, it's racing and you're thinking he's going to turn up. I'm not going to get out. I don't want the confrontation. I don't want any more police. I don't want anything. I just want to be rushed away. I don't, I, you know, and, you, and you're leaving your home that you've lived in for 23 years, your comforts, your, it's all I knew. And I, I was there longer than I was at my parents' house. And then when we did leave, I had no one to turn to. I didn't have any family I could go to. How could I go to my family? And I had no friends because I wasn't allowed to socialize with anybody. My life was taking the children to school, taking them to sports and coming home and work. That's all I did. I was put into an emergency accommodation. And when I got there, I knew it was going to be dire. We literally turned the key in the door and I turned around to my son and I gave him a sheepish, you know, like parents to give that smile to you to say, hey, it's okay. It's better than our old home. We're going to be fine. It's one close. We're almost near freedom. You know, we're one step closer. But as soon as I stepped on that carpet, the noise was literally like squelching and the smell really was bad. It made me feel sick. Now he's ill with an autoimmune disease. He's had three or four operations. And I'm thinking, this is where you're bringing him. And the guilt for me was terrible. Um, when we walked in, the walls were covered with human feces. So whoever lived there before must have been young children were just obviously weeing and doing what they were doing and, and social services didn't clean it. The you know, they didn't clean it, but I had no choice but to live there. I didn't understand about pay-as-you-go electric. I didn't understand you need these little cars and you go and top them up because every time I need electric, I switched a switch on, it was there. Every time I needed gas, I switched, it was there. I didn't understand the other side of it, unfortunately. And I had no money for those things anyway. So I wrapped him up in my coat that night and I sat in the other room and I cried and I, I've never cried like that before. I was crying to a point where I didn't want him to hear me. I didn't even want to hear myself, but my whole body was shaking because I was struggling so much and so desperately unhappy. 
that I had brought him into this pit of despair. But I remember looking down and my clothes were drenched and the way I was sitting, they were almost like puddles of my tears. And I looked and I thought, I'm not going to silently sob here. I'm going to dance in these puddles. I'm not going to give up. I can't give up what kind of a mother I've failed him so many times in my eyes. How can I stop now? And that's when I decided whatever happens, I'm going to make him comfortable again. I'm going to make him happy again. I'm going to give him everything he's not had. And I'll do it. Somehow I will do it. I've done it before. But when the system's working against you, it's not easy. And I couldn't get much help because I owned a property. I couldn't get much help because I owned a business. The businesses all went belly up apart from one, which was property, because I couldn't run them. Because if I was running them, he was there and he would see me. So I had to have police give me these um, non-molestation orders, they're called, so that he couldn't come near me. But he could come near me and talk to me. He just couldn't threaten me. So question, how far, how far were you physically from where he was at this point? Yeah, this is this is the thing, not far enough. I was 20 odd miles, not enough. They don't think that way. And it got to a point where you can only stay in the temporary accommodation for so long. And then you have to find your own way. And that's when we became homeless, um, which was, again, a really difficult time. But somebody, when I believe in angels, she opened her door to us. Somebody that I didn't even really know very well, but she kept seeing my son struggling at school and that he was unclean. I'd spoken to her a few times and she said, look, if you don't want to stay, at least let him stay in my house, I have room. And I'm not very good at accepting help because I've always been the one looking after everybody else, the nurturer, the cook, the cleaner, the one that goes out to work and brings the money back. Do you want a car? Okay, what do you need? And I'll get you the money for that car. You want to go to that school? All right, what do I need to do? Do the maths, I'll go and start this business and pay for that. I've never had someone say to me, look, sit down, I'm gonna look after you. So I found it very difficult, but I did it for him. I stayed there and I did any job. So if somebody wanted the house cleaning, I cleaned somebody's house. I cleaned it from top to bottom, the walls, everything, just for some money. And I started to collect money with these jobs, working in a factory, packing things. You know, I'd gone from running businesses to doing these menial, but it didn't matter. They were honest jobs and I was being paid and my bigger goal was to get a house, a rent a house. And it took me a month actually to get enough money to be able to rent the house. And that's when we moved. And that's when I stopped running because I was running all my life. But I had to move after that again. How, how long were you in the really, really bad, um, the, really, the, the, the really stinky, disgusting yeah. place? How long were you there? Um, to... Well, we had the place for two months, but I didn't stay there for two months. Okay. I, I just left because when you're surrounded in a particular situation, if you and I tried to clean it as best I could, but when you're in that situation, you you become depressed. You become it brings you down. And I've always had a standard of living that I feel my children deserve and I deserve. So I was accepting something if I was staying there. So I knew the only way not to accept it was to get out of there. Even if it meant living nowhere, 
on the streets, even on a bench, but it was better than me being in that place. And I'm telling you that place was so bad. I complained and complained and complained that when I left and I told them I'm not coming back, they ripped out the carpets and they did the whole place up. So I was happy for the next people. It wasn't habitable at all. But um, yeah, so I did get a house, as I said, and some things happened with my son, which you know is partly his story, but he fell apart basically. He suffered from depression. Um, it's that transition going from one extreme to another and it catches up with you and you think, well, that, what's just gone on in my life? And, you know, it's not a small thing that your father's trying to kill you. It's not a small thing that you have an autoimmune disease and you your life has changed so drastically. So mental health in that respect is it's going to take a toll on your, your mindset. Um and I've been helping him with that, to be honest with you. I've allowed him space and I've been there watching him in the background and just letting him find his own way, but giving him love and just keeping him safe. And um, I had to move in the end over 200 miles because the judge said I'd been attacked a few times because I was still in the same area. And the judge said, I can't keep giving you non-molestation orders. You've had five and this is getting ridiculous. You're, you have to go. I didn't know where to go because I was brought up in a small town. I was living in a small village. I've always used to small places, but my daughter was studying in London. And I thought, all right, maybe it's time for a big change. And that's when I realized when you move, you grow. And there was a sense of freedom. I could look literally over my shoulder and I didn't know the person there. I could look to the side. I didn't know the person there. And I realized that I actually felt really free. And that's well, when I found they also, Nina, they also didn't know you. And I think that was maybe a piece of that as well, because I'm guessing that you probably were not a huge fan of you at that time. Exactly. You're so right. Yeah. Yeah. I had no, no self-love and I didn't regard myself with any worth. I didn't know what a wonderful person I am that I do know now, but I found my self-love. I forgave myself for the things I maybe could have, should have, would have done. I also understood that I had to go through that journey. And I understood that, like I said to you earlier, that how would I be able to help somebody in a situation if I haven't lived through that experience? And it's a collection of wealth of knowledge and emotion and emotional intelligence that I've gathered, not by choice, but maybe that was my path. Maybe that was what was meant for me. So now that I am full of love and I'm having small wins, you know, I'm a, I'm a car head. I love cars. <laughs> I don't know why I like engines and shiny cars and engines. So <laughs> I did I not, I would not have anticipated you saying that actually. <laughs> yeah. I no, don't think that of me, but I love the feeling of a car and the speed when it goes around a corner. <laughs> There's a lot of different sides to me, but, um, one of the first things I did, I didn't have enough money for a house or a car or anything, but I held on to one of the businesses and I gave him the seven bedroom house. I gave him one of the businesses because before I'd left, I'd paid all the mortgages as well. So there was, you know, I've lost a lot, but I didn't focus on what I'd lost. I'd focus on what I had. So I decided, well, I can't buy a house at the minute. I'm going to rent something that I believe I can live in and I'll find the rent money. I'll, I'll find it. I'll do what I need to do, but I'm not going to live in a small place. I want to live in a place that's 
semi big because that's what I want for him. I mean, my other children come back. I want to maintain that standard. And every time I move on, I want to make it better and better and better because that's how I push myself. And I treated myself, I was 50 last year, so I treated myself to a car that came not long ago. And it's, it's, gives me pleasure it's my it's my thing because I'm in the car on my own and I've learned to do things for me now without having to explain them to anyone it's not for my ego I don't care what anybody thinks about me in my car I don't care but it's how I feel in my car what kind of car I got an Audi A5 good for you it's a nice one it's a really nice one yes I love those they're beautiful yeah but the point of it is how I feel in it. And my reason of saying this is that you get to a point where you start finding small pleasures and you understand it doesn't matter what anybody thinks. Because people said to me, are you crazy? You can't afford food. You can't afford this. And I just said, I'm going to do what I want to do because I'm not explaining myself to it. Whether it's an irrational thing for me to do, that's fine. But it gives me pleasure and I'm allowed to feel good. And I'm allowed to have that one thing that's mine, not for anybody else, that I can sit and escape go for a drive have my music on and i'm in my own little world and that's how i've learned to love myself as weird as it sounds i've learned to love myself through giving myself small pleasures i've not even been to starbucks yet (laughs) and i keep saying this i'm desperate to go and have my name written on the cup i've lived such a sheltered life but a friend took me to play pool I've never played pool in my life I was actually really good I won him and he was like why are you you've played this before but I haven't I'm almost like a child learning new things and I love that and I'm excited about life but would I have thought I would be feeling this way when I was 10 20 years ago no I wouldn't I never imagined it and even though we have this pandemic going on I, I sometimes stick a video on my Instagram and just say to people look I know that the pandemic's going on but without causing a problem for anyone else you can still escape to somewhere go for a drive or go for a walk somewhere you wouldn't normally go there's so many little places that are around the corner from you that you haven't discovered and it's called living not existing and yeah working you can work till you can become a workaholic like I used to be but I'm not that anymore it's about finding that balance and I'm still finding my way with work, I admit, you know, but I'm enjoying life and not one day goes by that I've not said my affirmations, not been thankful for everything I do have, not been thankful that I'm still alive and that I can give this message. But when you feel so good and you discover a new secret, you want to share it with everyone and you're excited and you want to say, look, you know, this, this is called life and you can live it if you stop being in the situation that you're in and do something. And I'm, I'm pleading with people to just try to be brave and look how happy I am now. And I'm genuinely happy because I was forced out of a situation, but you don't have to be forced. It's almost like that anchor that we're carrying around with us weighs us down. It's just been thrown to one side and I'm swimming in this wonderful sea of opportunities that I can find solutions to my, what I thought were my problems, you know? Yeah. life changes it changes in a completely different way does it bother you when you see people that have gone through uh, that haven't gone through some of the things that you have you mentioned the anchor and I, and that really 
that really hits home with me because, <clears throat> you know, uh, I, I'm certainly not perfect. I've gone through my trials and tribulations, absolutely nothing compared to what you have. Um, and I just wonder from your standpoint and, and what you've been through, when you see someone with so much potential, but they're, they just won't do anything with it, but they have all the resources and, and for whatever reason, maybe it's they're lazy or, or maybe that they just don't have the ambition or, or whatever that looks like. How does, I mean, how does that make you feel? Don't you, do you just want to shake them and just say like, wake up? Well, I used to help new businesses set up. That's one of the things I used to do in my old life, as I call it. Um, one of my family mottos was be the best you can be with the gifts that you have, because I, I know so many of us have potential that we can do so much with, but we don't have the self-belief. I wouldn't shake anybody if I saw somebody like that. I would try to coax out of them that they have that and help them build their own belief up. And maybe my telling my story will say to somebody, she's doing it, you know, she's, she's got on with it. I don't have a degree. I didn't even, I wasn't allowed to study that much, you know, but I read books and I believed in myself. I could do things. Maybe I was trying to prove myself in the world. I don't know why, but there's always something pushing me. And even now that want for a better life has always been there for me. So maybe that's in my box of treasure chest and my negative box I've literally thrown away and now I'm holding on to this and everyone has this you have it everybody has that box that we don't always look at with all the good things I've got my three children I've got my health I've got a smile you know and that's a wealth that we I no one could take that from me and all the negative things that have been dragging me back and back in that prisoner that I was of the past I don't need to be there nor does anybody else but if somebody's got potential and they and not using it, I don't get angry. If I come across those people, I do speak to them and say to them, I try to get people to see their own value because when they see their own value, they understand that they there's no limits to them. They Those limiting beliefs they have are then thrown out of the window. Um, but we're, we see people for what they can't see themselves sometimes. Like when I was in a situation, I couldn't see, I was in such a dangerous situation, other people could. So if you can tell somebody that, you know what, you've got an amazing art, artist type of vibes, you, you can, you're so creative, you can do this. They will go away and think, maybe I can, because she said I can, and I do enjoy it. But it's just a case of, I'm very much about kindness and, and being positive and trying to tell people to look within. Um, and find you know I'll share a quick story with you. Um, it, we are getting towards the end, but I, I want to share a quick story with you. I, and I don't know if you know what ayahuasca is, and if you don't, that's okay. But if you do, then you'll understand what I'm talking about. But it's an Amazonian medication that you take, and it's, it's, there has some psychedelic properties to it. And that was one of the things that I learned in my, in my ayahuasca journey is that I didn't value myself the way other people do. And I, I tried to not really look at why I was hearing that message, but it was loud and clear. Um, and, and deep down, I knew why that message was coming through, but I didn't, didn't want to look at it because I didn't want to believe that that's what the message was. But after a couple of months went by ish and maybe less than that, I realized exactly 
what it was trying to say. And, and I do believe that people don't value themselves. And I do believe that's where that when, when people don't value themselves, it stands in the way of their growth. It did for me, that is for sure. So I, I think that was a valuable point that you made there. I don't think we're taught. I think we're programmed. You know, parents can be very negative without knowing they're very negative. And often parents will say, and I've written a book called Master Your Life, Live the Life of Your Dreams. And I've written a section on love and relationships to do with family and relationships in general. But parents will sometimes say to a child, do your homework. And the child will say, why? And they'll say, because I told you so. Not, and there's so many different ways of saying things. And I was doing this with my children in a totally different way. I would say, well, if you do your homework, then you'll be able to go to football because they played football, soccer, as you call it. And you can come back quickly or you can watch a cartoon before you go to bed. You know, I would almost bar, it was like a business deal for me. But a lot of parents don't realise they're being so negative and words are so, so influential on a person's mindset because you believe what you're told. I was told constantly I was fat, I was ugly, I was not worthy, that, you know, everyone wished me dead. And you believe that, that's why I think I stayed in such a bad situation for such a long time because I didn't think anything, I was worth anything else. Yeah. I know I know now, and that's why I want other people, I want them to see the value them within themselves. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, that's unbelievably important for for every, everybody and if if you're having if you're questioning whether you value yourself or not this is such a great example of you know you are such a, a lighthouse for people that are maybe going through I'm hoping there's nobody else in this world going through what you were going through but I know that it happens every day and it happens even and, and I, I and I, I tend to believe well it doesn't happen here but it happens here in the US more than it does in a lot of places. And, and I think it's such a taboo um, conversation, taboo thing to hear that we just, it's called social dissonance, I believe, uh, where you just turn the other way because you don't, it's so bad, you don't wanna hear it. Today, somebody's died from an honor killing and somebody may be around the corner and I've been threatened I've had two death threats since I started speaking out but if I don't break the silence then who will you know I feel I mean we're running out of time but my father actually has just come out of prison because he had a child out of wedlock and he took the six-year-old daughter in 2015 and killed her in India and the police couldn't charge him for anything more than abduction if I'd spoken out when they had broken my arm and my jaw I may have been able to save a life. I couldn't do anything about that now, but maybe I can do something about it happening to somebody else. Well, nobody, nobody should be punished for being born um, a gender or there should be no discrimination. A, a life is such a valuable thing. I agree. And uh, well, what you've done today um, is you've opened someone's eyes to the possibilities of getting out of the situation that they're in, or you've opened their eyes to maybe, I hope it's opened the eyes of someone that, um, that maybe is, is in the middle of this as the abuser, and maybe it's opened their eyes to think about what they're doing to the person that they're abusing, because I'm guessing that's probably an absent thought lots of times. And 
it's just mind blowing to me. It's mind blowing. You've, the made story. An, you've made an amazing point because I do want to appeal to those abusers to say, they'll look at me hopefully and think, well, she looks like a decent person and I completely am. Maybe just consider what they're doing or even someone who's a young person to say they don't want to be that abuser. They don't want to be like that to their partners. So I'm hoping to reach as many people as possible, but you're completely right. <laughs> Well, uh, Nina, I, I just, I really, I can't thank you enough for coming on today. Could you just do me one quick favor and please tell um, if you so choose to where people can either find you or, and also where they can find your book. Yeah, so my book's being published. It'll be on Amazon soon. Um, right. It's called Master Your Life, Live the Life of Your Dreams. It's a self-help book. I'm Nina Olk and I am on ninaolk.com. But I'm also on Instagram called Nina the Brit or the London's Life Coach. You can find me on them. Thank Perfect. You. And I will have everything uh, listed in the show notes so they'll be able to find you there as well. So Nina, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you so much, Tori. You're welcome. If you took anything away from this podcast, make sure you subscribe, leave a review, and go check out some other episodes on SuccessfulLifePodcast.com. This is the Successful Life. Thank you for tuning into the Successful Life Podcast. We hope today's insights have ignited your passion and provided tools to shape your leadership journey. Remember, greatness is a journey, not a destination. Continue your pursuit by exploring more resources and insights over at CoreyBarrier.com. Until next time, keep leading, keep learning, and keep striving for excellence. Stay inspired and see you on the next episode.